else did you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Barry. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes! Hello and welcome, everyone, to the George Sanders Show, Jimmy Stewart Spectacular. Uh, tying in with a string of films that are running at the Grand Illusion Cinema in Seattle. They ran It's a Wonderful Life uh, around Christmas, obviously. Um, and then they're doing a double feature of Shop Around the Corner and The Philadelphia Story um, at their lovely little theater. We're making a whole Stewart extravaganza this week. Uh, Sean, you're admittedly on record as saying uh, Jimmy Stewart's the best actor of all time. Yes. Is that still uh, yes? He's still saying that. Yep. Uh, I, I I'm glad you didn't change your mind in between <laughs> us deciding to do this show and uh, us doing this show. So we're going to dive in deep into Jimmy Stewart's filmography. Uh, we're going to talk in depth about two films this week: an early one, very early, 1938's uh, Shopworn Angel, directed by H. C. Potter, who we discovered uh, right before recording here is uh, the first director ever to have two films discussed at length on the George Sanders show. So congratulations uh, to Mr. Potter. Uh, I'm looking forward to the third Potter film coming down the line uh, in a few months. I haven't decided which one we're going to do, but <laughs> uh, and we're also going to talk about Cheyenne Social Club, a very late period Jimmy Stewart film from 1970 directed by Gene Kelly. Um, we're also going to uh, talk, you know, about, Stewart's career on, on the whole. We're going to hear clips uh, throughout the show of uh, famous scenes of Jimmy Stewart's. Uh, at the top of the show, that was from It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, we have some some fun stuff going on throughout the show. We'll, t we'll uh, talk about our uh, favorite Jimmy Stewart performances and uh, some other things, some non-Stewart-related things. Uh, another movie theater closed in Seattle. And uh, we're going to talk about the top... 10 films of uh, the, the half decade, the 2010 to 2014. Uh, is that it? Do we have anything else, Sean? That sounds like a full plate. Yeah, we should probably get started. <laughs> yeah, instead of me telling you what you're going to be hearing in the future, we should just start talking about what we're going to be talking about. So here's a clip from H.C. Potter's film, The Shopworn Angel. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile. Your 
All right, that was Pack Up Your Troubles in Your Old Kit Bag, sung by Margaret Sullivan's character in Shopworn Angel, if not actually Sullivan herself. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that her vocals were dubbed by Mary Martin, which uh, sounds about right. It doesn't, I can't really imagine Margaret Sullivan singing as uh, talented and wonderful as she is. Uh, anyway, uh, Shopworn Angel is... Uh, is the third adaptation of a story about a soldier on uh, heading out to fight in World War One. Uh, while he's in New York, he accidentally bumps into a famous Broadway star who is very cynical. Uh, the two of them strike up a relationship. He's his wide-eyed idealism kind of melts her cynical heart. And as she plays along with pretending to be in love with him, and then he goes off to war and dies. The end. The end. It's super sad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't. I don't know. Should we? Should I mention that? Do we? Do we care about spoiling this eighty-year-old movie? No, I don't think. I think that's fine. Yeah, I think. I think you kind of know that. That uh, it's, how... it's kind of telegraphed from yeah, you know, well in advance. So, although the, to be to be fair, um, watching it. Like I was expecting that moment, but the whole time I was telling myself, "There's no way they're gonna actually ha kill him." Like the whole time I was watching it, and that's, and and so it was kind of a shock. Like I expected it, but I didn't expect it to actually be done. And then it was done, and I was super sad. Yeah, and it and it comes, you know, right at the end, and and that that final, that final shot is it's so well done. Uh, uh, yeah. Sullivan is is on stage singing pack up your troubles and uh her her maid brings the letter to her boyfriend uh played by walter pigeon and in the letter everyone knows what's in the letter because you can feel like the dog tag in it and as she's singing she sees him open the letter and sees the dog tag and and he tells her you know sing sing and you know she you know struggles on despite poor poor jimmy's death yeah, with tears in her eyes. Yeah, a big, a big close-up on Margaret Sullivan's tear-stained face. Yeah, um, it's it's just a wonderful Hollywood melodrama moment. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. I I ate this movie up. I absolutely loved it. Now it's a very uh, simple, like straightforward um, kind of narrative, and like you said, like you kind of know the beats as they go along, but. Um, it doesn't matter in a movie like this. And I've, I was, yeah, I was, I was suckered into this from the, from the get go. And I think part of it is, you know, it's interesting because I usually, you know, I have passions, you know, uh, artistic passions, you know, I, um, you know, I love music and I, and I enjoy playing music. Uh, you know, I, I, I've attempted clumsily so to, to write on occasion, um, but I never ever had the desire to like make a movie. I love watching movies, but I never had this desire to actually create one myself. And I was thinking about it. And I think the reason why is because I will never have the opportunity to work with uh, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. Like, what's the point of making a movie if you can't get those two in it? Because um, they're, they're just so 
God, they're so good in this movie <laughs> together. And obviously they've done, you know, the pairing of the two of them um, was kind of a thing, you know, uh, speaking of Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, this, this, did, this was their second on-screen pairing. Yeah, they did, I think, four films together. Yeah, um, uh, Shop Around the Corner and uh, Frank Borzegi's The Mortal Storm is the other one. Also a really, really great movie. And yeah, and, and there's just this, I don't know, there's this beauty to it. There's, there's a chemistry, there's the, the way the two kind of play off of each other. And, you know, they play very different characters from one another in this movie. He's this, you know, uh, kind of country rube, and she's this kind of this seen it all, you know, city woman actress. And, uh, but by golly, you know, his charm wins her over, and she. I, it, oh, I love. <laughs> I'm not being very articulate, but that's because uh, it it it's it's pure emotion that I'm feeling with that and uh, with those performances and uh, the supporting cast too, which I'll, we can get into in a little bit. But you know, Walter Pigeon, Hattie McDaniel, who is the the maid that you're talking about, um, and someone else who I'll bring up in a little bit, but. Yeah, I, it's it's really fascinating just because this is is before Jimmy Stewart is is a big star. It's it's like he's right on the eve of of superstardom, which which comes in nineteen thirty nine and forty. He has just this the string of of uh, masterpieces, but this this one defines so much of what his persona is going to be for the next decade or so. Uh, just the uh, the all American kind of of wide eyed idealist that uh, kind of gets gets dismissed, and you know that's it's the first thing that you think about in Jimmy Stewart, and and then when you're a teenager, you learn to to look down on that because you understand so much more about the world. But the thing that 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 uh, that doesn't get is is that every one of these movies where where Stewart plays this kind of character is is just as cynical as as any uh, uh, brooding teen would want to be, um, and the the thing that makes them good, the thing that makes them so powerful, is that the Stewart character is exactly aware of how evil the world is, or at least the movie is, but it still chooses to be idealistic in the face of that. And that that's really what the shopworn angel is about. Like uh, Sullivan and and Pigeon are are just as uh, as nihilistic a pair of nineteen thirties Broadway socialites as as you can get. Like they're they're complete. They're alcoholics. They're up all night. They don't care about anything or anyone. And they you know they meet this this kid and fall in love with him and with each other. It's really, it's really clever and it's really uh, wonderful. Yeah, it's great. And and um, going to back to Stewart, uh, this movie, like I, I can't picture anybody else in that role and pulling it off. Like, they, like this movie teeters on the precipice of of I won't, I don't want to say believability, but like uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, success and and and, and it any really does... any other actor plays this kind of role and you think that he's dumb right but and Stuart, he's not at all and he he you know and he he has these little moments in the movie where he talks you know he and sullivan uh he he talks about living the uh 
the dream or he's he's uh, wrapped up. I forget what the exact phrase is, but, um, you know, this this fake romance that he's in with her. And he knows that it's a fake romance for, you know, he, he knows that she doesn't love him like he, you know, has been falling for her. Um, but it does. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. You know, he's 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 aware of all that stuff. He's not this uh, naive kind of guy. He um, he just has a different approach to life than everybody else around him. And that makes everybody else. It makes them better because they are in his orbit. And, yeah. And that's and that's exactly the same kind of character he'll, he'll play in in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Sure. Uh, which which follows, you know, much the same kind of template where he kind of melts the cynicism of all of the people around him with his just dogged goodness. And then you get, uh, and then you start to get variations on that, uh, in his, in his post-war career, which we'll, we'll talk about later, but, but something like It's Wonderful Life really kind of plays off of that image of, of Jimmy Stewart and that persona that he developed in the, in the late thirties. But yeah, he's, He's so good. <laughs> yeah, I really think that his performance here is one of his best. Like, I was just gobsmacked. Like, I was just in love with him. Uh, his, he's so lanky. And, you know, just watching him walking down the streets of Manhattan, you know, all agog at the big buildings and stuff. And, you know, he's got that aw shucks kind of charm to him and stuff. And he goes into like a, a soda uh, fountain and, and orders, you know, a chocolate soda. And he's just, you know... He's he's just this personification of just happy go lucky like he nothing's going to bring him down and uh it's just it's infectious you know to everybody in the in the movie and to the viewers at home um who are watching it too um I want to give a shout out I was going I said it earlier but uh every time he's in a movie he's kind of like my lamb suet of like old hollywood uh <laughs> Nat Pendleton's in here yeah, I saw his name in the credits, and I knew that you would be talking about him this week. He plays a character named Dice. Uh, people that have listened to the show before know that I am a huge Nat Pendleton fan because he was uh, one of the football players in the Marx Brothers' Horse Feathers. Um, and he always plays... He was actually a, a wrestler who turned. Who became an actor. I think he was an Olympic wrestler who turned. He became an actor. And he always plays kind of a, you know a lug head kind of guy, you know, brute kind of dude. But, uh, yeah, he's one of, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart's company who kind of razzes him about the fact that he's a virgin and, you know, doesn't have a sweetheart or whatever. Um, and yeah, I was, I was very happy to see Nat Pendleton in this thing. So, and, uh, Hattie McDaniel, who the year next year will go on to do, uh, gone with the wind, um, for which she will win an Oscar. Um, I really like her portrayal. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very minor character for the most part. Martha, the um, the maid, uh, the of uh, Margaret Sullivan's character, um, but Hattie McDaniel's uh, she's got you know some verve to her, and I really love the relationship between her and Daisy, where um, they'll yell at each other, and it's not it's not your typical Hollywood like black kind of servant role. Um, she she's a little more assertive, and she's. Uh, She's also kind of uh, part of the family a little bit more in this, and uh, I think she's great. Yeah, H Hattie McDaniel does any everything that she can with a with a with what's a very stereotypical role. 
Yeah, but she does it. Which and, is kind uh, of the the story of her career is right. is overcoming the the limitations of of Hollywood casting. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so this is a very different movie from uh, the previous H.C. Potter film that we've talked about. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. I I would say <laughs> I would say it's it's pretty it's a pretty far cry from Hell's a Poppin, um, which. You know, I could I could see the connection, but uh, Hell's a Poppin is all about deconstructing all of these Hollywood tropes. And if anything, this movie uh, kind of polishes all of those tropes and makes them successful. You know what I mean? Like, like just two, three years later, he'll make this movie that just kind of laughs in the face of a movie uh that would do a meet cute between a, a a Texas Rube and a you know Broadway star. Um but here it's it's there's a sincerity to it um that that is absolutely necessary, obviously. But uh I feel like these are two very different movies. Well I think uh uh Hills of Poppin is so is so insane that you you either need the only kind of director that could direct it is is somebody who completely has no idea what they're doing or someone who is is uh, is eminently capable of making a a completely standard film, and and Potter is that second kind. Like he, yeah. you need to know how to make a Hollywood movie in order to deconstruct it as thoroughly as Hell's Poppin does, and that and that is Potter. He's he's solid. Yeah, he yeah, knows I've... how to make a, a Hollywood movie, and uh, I think I've only seen one of his other films. That's a uh, Mr. Blandings builds his dream house, which is a, a thoroughly fine <laughs> uh, late forties Cary Grant film. It's not it's not great. It's not terrible. It's it's fine. Well, uh, well that's what I find so interesting yeah. is that th- you know I haven't seen that one, uh, but these are the two that I've seen, and I for totally different reasons. But but. Regardless, I love both of these movies that he's done. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, clearly, you know, it's not. He's not this like, you know, hidden auteur that's, you know, that no one's, you know, that people have failed to mention or whatever. But I'm glad to say that he's he's batting a thousand with me. He's doing just <laughs> fine. You know? Sure. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the, the world needs H.C. Potter's. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and something like Hell's a Poppin, obviously, um, the Ol- strengths Ol- of Olsen that Olsen and movie... Johnson are more the, the exactly. auteurs of that film than Exactly. Than, and I would say Potter. Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart are the auteurs of something like this, where, you know, like we said, if if it wasn't those two in the leads, uh, I, I don't know if it, if it works. Right, here's, a, here's, a, here's a question for you. Who, whose voice is better, Jimmy Stewart or Margaret Sullivan? Jimmy Stewart. I mean, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that with um, Cheyenne Social Club, you know, mm. because he and Henry Fonda have such distinctive, you know, drawls, you know, and yeah. to hear for, them for play... me, for me, Fonda's is nowhere near Stewart's class. No, no, no. I, I agree. I, I think I think Stewart takes the cake there, too. Um, but. You have to admit that uh, Henry Fonda's voice is very distinctive. I mean, it's a very unique kind of uh, 
twang to it or whatever whatever's going on there. But uh, but yeah, Jimmy. I mean, who's gonna top Jimmy Stewart's uh, inflection and the way he, you know, reads lines? It's n- nobody. Yeah, he's he's great. But Margaret Sullivan has a, a fantastic voice. It's it's so it's so distinctive. It's got that hoarseness, but also uh, so precise in her in her pronunciation. She's mm-hmm. I, I I really love Margaret Sullivan. Yeah. Oh, me too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I I think she's just great. Well, let me ask you this question: Is there any better name out there than McGonagall, <laughs> which is the name of the uh, producer of the Broadway show uh, that she's starring in? And there's a line at the very beginning of the movie where they just keep saying McGonagall like mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Um, and I could just listen to someone say, it's like on the Simpsons, you know, McGonagall, uh, I, McGonagall, McGonagall. <laughs> I could just listen to them say them all <laughs> the time. We should just, uh, spend the next 10 minutes of this podcast just saying McGonagall, <laughs> McGonagall, McGonagall, McGonagall. Okay. Probably not. No, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> That'll be a bonus, bonus episode. This, what I find interesting about this movie you know, is that this is happening, you know, between United States involvement in in world wars, what would be world wars. Um, obviously, war was uh, not, you know, off the map at that time. Um, but it's so interesting to see the difference. Like this movie made three years later, would not have been made three years later. Like it, the the way it shows um, just kind of the inevitable death surrounding war. And, uh, you know, the the army is, you know, it's not painted in a horrible light. It's not like, it's not an anti-war movie, but it's, uh, it's clearly um, not, it's not a rah-rah patriot kind of thing that would happen, you know, obviously once the United States got involved in, in WW2, um, and I, I, but I find this, a, you know, it's a very interesting time to, to, um, have this movie come out and I don't think it would have worked in any other time period. Yeah. I don't know. I, there's, uh, there are, there are melodramas like this set in, in World War One. I'm thinking of, uh, uh, like Seventh Heaven, uh, I think with Frank Forzaghi has, uh, the, uh, the hero goes off to war and, uh, and then comes back to to his wife. Uh, I'm not. I don't, I'm trying to think of any others where where he gets killed and the wife goes on. Mm-hmm. I guess John Ford's Pilgrimage, kind of uh, the the setup for that is like the mom uh, pushes her son to go off to war, to you know because of her patriotism, and then he dies. And then the second half of the movie is her kind of dealing with that guilt. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think during the war, you think, you think Jimmy Stewart would come back? Oh, absolutely. The, no doubt in my mind. There's no, there's no way they would set up this. Yeah, absolutely. He is not dying. Um, and also on top or of they, that, they might just leave it ambiguous. It might just end with her, you know, like keeping the home fires burning, like knitting some socks for him. And, you know, with like a little montage of like, we need, we all need to do our part by Liberty Bonds, that kind of thing. Right. Which would be, yeah, which would change the message of the movie completely. Um, and well, and also, as you said, uh, Jimmy Stewart was on the cusp of, of, you know, superstardom at this point. So three years later, 
um, regardless of, 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 you know, uh, patriotic war, you know, uh, cheerleading, uh, it would have been a lot harder to kill off Jimmy Stewart in a movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be freighted with so much more, uh, for ideological baggage. Right. Because, because by that point, Stewart has, has like come to embody a, a certain ideal of America. And if you kill him, then like you're killing Right. America. <laughs> right. You know, which is which is a, which works for this movie retroactively, you know? Like it's interesting yeah. to watch it now knowing of, you know, that place he kind of holds in a, in, you know, uh American kind of cultural consciousness or whatever. Um but then to see like I said at the beginning, I was shocked that they actually ended up killing him because you think of all those things. Um and but I'm I'm so glad they did. Um it's it, this movie is just this movie is just um put that on the dvd i'm so glad they killed jimmy stewart <laughs> it works it works it was a, it it's i you know it's a bold decision and and it pays off and um what do you think about what do you think of ultimately about this relationship between the two of them like um, she, you know, the, what's, what's great about this movie is that it's, it's kind of a love triangle, but you don't really hate anybody. Like, it's not like Walter Pigeon is really a bad guy. Um, I think it's, it's one of the rare love triangles where it, I don't even think it's really a, a triangle. I think she's like legitimately in love with both of these guys, men. I know. And that's, what's really fascinating about it. And you know, you feel bad at certain points because, you know, when you see how um, kind of, you know, obsessed like puppy love uh, Jimmy Stewart has with her in the early scenes and she's very flippant about it, um, both to him and to Walter Pigeon and stuff. Um, and you feel kind of bad, you know, but then those scenes where she's with Walter Pigeon, it totally you see the love between the two of them um, and the connection that they have. Um, it, it all, it all makes sense. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it, it follows this, this great kind of perverse logic where, where you're, you're on Margaret Sullivan's side the whole time. So when, when Pigeon starts to become jealous, you want to explain to him, listen, she's going to have her affair with this guy and he's going to die and <laughs> then she'll be with you. So just chill out and wait a few months. Right. Which is such a horrible thing to think, but that, exactly. But the movie makes that logical. It really does. It really sells that whole thing, and uh, I, and it's so great to see that where where it it doesn't have that kind of lazy, you know, uh, setting up of of the the rivalry, so to speak. And and also, Jim, uh, once again, Jimmy Stewart is such a is a, such a great foil for all of that. You know, when he comes, you know, when Walter Pigeon opens the door to the apartment, you know, and Jimmy Stewart just walks in. He's not shocked that uh, that there's another man in her apartment. He's just like, oh hey, how's it going? I've just brought some flowers because she's not feeling so good, you know, or whatever. Which completely disarms any kind of uh, you know like tension between the two of them. Um, which is fantastic. Yeah, you could you could say it's it's naivety on 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 his part, or it's just he just doesn't care. Yeah, I think he just doesn't care. I think he might he may even acknowledge that at some point. Like he he may say, I think he says somewhere along the line that you know he realizes that he, you know Walter Pigeon's a part of her life, but he's like, 
whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's great. I love the scene of Walter Pigeon being jealous, too, because he's so he's so calm and cool in the early goings of this movie. And then to see that one scene where he's where he breaks the uh, the vase or whatever she oh no, this little Statue of Liberty she gets at Coney Island um, as he's trying to go through the house, trying to find something that will, you know, provoke her um, is great. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a melodrama about about three characters who are who are really kind of incapable of expressing emotion too because they're so withdrawn and 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 cynical and the third because you know he's about to go off to war. Yeah, it's 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 very uh, non melodramatic for a melodrama. Yeah, it's just flat out depressing. <laughs> Is it depressing? I find it. I was crying like a baby at the end. I yeah, mean, but that it's sad. But I don't know. I don't think it's. I don't think it's depressing. Well, I, I think. Yeah. I think it. I think it moves into depressing territory um, when when you realize that he's he's gonna die. Like that 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 the, there's no hope for this guy. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's depressing in the way that all war is depressing. Yeah, but uh, but I think this is more effective than a lot of those movies. The the more heavy-handed ones too. Like I think it's. Um, well, how how do you think it compares to the other the other big World War One movie that we watched on the show uh, uh, last year, year before last, uh, the Big Parade, which is is very similar in in some respects. There's even a, at one point there's a big parade, and somebody asked Walter Pigeon, "What do you think of the Big Parade?" That's uh, true. And, uh, and and pigeon is like uh, he refuses to to join up with with the army. Unlike the uh, the John Gilbert character who like you know volunteered. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I that's a good question. I mean, these movies they they occupy very different spaces within that same kind of uh, you know world. Um, yeah. And and, yeah, and, so. and that's one where where the hero and the heroine do have the happy ending. Gilbert Gilbert isn't killed; he's just injured. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, from a filmmaking standpoint, sorry, H. C. Potter. Uh, you know, there are more like indelible imagery, you know, going on in in the big parade. There's that great shot of the soldiers, you know, marching forward through the forest and stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, that's a that's a much more of a you know, yeah, the, cinematic kind of uh, experience. The only the only war scenes in in Shopworn Angel are are montages. Yeah, which which Potter probably didn't have anything to do with. They had the studios would have like a whole montage branch that would put together those things. So right. Yeah, but the you know it'd be interesting to kind of play those back to back though, and kind of get the the two. Uh, those two kind of experiences because yeah, because this is a, this is a, a world war one movie. It, it's, you know, it's really not even a world war one movie. Like there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff in here that doesn't actually fit that time period. It, it's, it's much more of a 1938 movie than, than a, you know, movie that's, that's taking place 20 years in the past. Yeah, that's um, true. The, uh, the, the Sullivan and, and pigeon characters are very much, uh, creatures of the 1930s, kind of Algonquin Roundtable kind of people. They're yeah, they're post World War One cynicism. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're yeah. It's a gener it's a generational 
divide um that doesn't and so the war the war really do, it's like a world war one in this movie is more of an abstract concept than yeah something it's like it's, the it's more like you know it it feels more like world war ii is the war that he's going to go off to fight which was actually, in the air in 1938 right but not right. an actual thing yet and except in china where it had been going for several years um yeah i i actually you know i didn't know the date um that this movie was or i forgot when i started watching it and so for a part of it i was like i thought it was world war ii but i was you know <laughs> but then i realized later wait a minute that doesn't make any sense but um so yeah it's it, it whereas the big parade i think um actually feels like a world it could you know it's not any other war than world war one in that sure one, for many reasons uh, but it's great. Both of them are great. Movies yeah. are great. Yep. <laughs> uh, speaking of great, we're going to listen to another clip uh, of Jimmy Stewart here. Um, this is from Harvey, and uh, it, which is uh, I. You know, I saw Harvey first time. I saw Harvey was the the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, uh, California. Um, this regal, you know, grand old movie palace, kind of like the Paramount here in Seattle. Um, except they, I think they only do movies there as opposed to, you know, live shows and stuff. Um, and I, I, the two movies I remember going to see there as a kid were the wizard of Oz, uh, when they would, um, chalk, they'd get yellow chalk and go out on the, on the uh, sidewalk in front of the theater and, and make a yellow brick road for kids to walk on to go into the movies, uh, and Harvey and, um, Harvey is such an interesting movie to see at different points in your life. Because <laughs> we did we run it for Metro Classics? We did. Yeah, we did, right? Uh and I, I don't think I'd seen it since I was eight or nine when we did that. And uh let me tell you, very different experience. <laughs> Twenty years later. So uh here's a clip from that movie. And none of those people are your friends, but I want you to know that I am your friend. Well, thank you, Doctor, and I'm yours. They underestimate you. As I did. This sister of yours is at the bottom of a conspiracy against you. She's trying to persuade me to lock you up today. She had commitment papers drawn up. She has your power of attorney and the key to your safety box. And she brought you here. My sister did all that in one afternoon. That Vita certainly is a whirlwind, isn't she? Gordy heavens, man, haven't you any righteous indignation? Oh, doctor, I... I you know, years ago, my mother used to say to me, she'd say, in this world, Elwood... You must be, she always called me Elwood. In this world, Elwood, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You may quote me. Yeah, I first saw Harvey when I was in college. I was like at my most uh, misanthropic and, and snotty. Mm-hmm. And uh, that movie... I don't know that any movie like ever changed my life, but that movie made me reevaluate the way I viewed the world. <laughs> it, the, the line in particular, it was, uh, it kind of was like a dagger to the heart. I'm like, you know, maybe I should be nicer. <laughs> so, and when are you gonna when are you gonna plan on uh, implementing that? In I, I, I try. Okay. <laughs> Every day is a struggle. I know. I know. Uh, so speaking of, of struggles, as uh, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, two more theaters 
closed in Seattle over over the holidays. Uh, I believe yesterday was the last day for the Harvard exit, and the varsity closed a couple weeks ago. And this is this is a subject that's come up several times on the George Sanders show, uh, and it's depressing every time. And I don't know that we have anything new to say about it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's anything new to say either. It is depressing. Um, you know, some things get resurrected uh, and have new life put into them. The Egyptian uh, we talked about closed and then reopened a year later. Yeah, um, and, it's a different and, entity. And the varsity is going to reopen under under new management. Right. Um, but yeah, it's 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 you know it's history. You know. Um, that you're losing, you know, like the Harvard exit, for example, which is not going to be uh, a, a theater anymore. It's going to be uh, torn down and turned into condos or something like that. So I think it's, uh, I think the building's going to remain, but it's going to be turned into like office space. Yeah. Which is a, it's a, that's a, that's a huge bummer. That's a, you know, and so for me, like, it, you know, when these things happen, it's a time for reflection, you know, the, there's nothing I can do at this point, <laughs> um, except think about the good times that I had in these places. Um, so what, let me ask you, what's your most memorable, you worked at the varsity, so, uh, maybe you're, you're, it's going to have a different tinge to it, but what, what's your favorite memory of, of both the varsity and the Harvard exit? Uh, I didn't. I didn't get to the Harvard exit all that often, um, but you know, I saw. I saw a number of of great movies there. Like In the Mood for Love was the first one I saw there, and I think the last one was The Midnight After, which was one of my favorite movies of last year. So you know, I don't. I don't have the the attachment to the Harvard exit that a lot of people who lived on on Capitol Hill for a long time did. Like it, it was a, a beloved theater among a, a certain class of Seattleite. Uh, for me, the varsity was much more my theater because it was, it was the first place I worked when I, when I moved to Seattle. Uh, the, it was the first place I saw a movie in Seattle. Like the, the first thing I did, uh, the first thing I did when I moved in was go to uh, Scarecrow Video and then I went to Cinema Books, and then I went back to Scarecrow. And then the first movie I saw was at the Varsity, and they were doing a, an Akira Kurosawa series. So in the, in the first week that I was there, I saw Rashomon and a double feature of Throne of Blood and Hidden Fortress. And during during that double feature, I noticed they had like a Help Wanted sign in the window. So I actually filled out my job application for there during the intermission of the double bill. And then I, I started working there shortly thereafter, and... You know that was that was just, that was my theater. It was my home theater for for two years. It was where I worked all through the time I was I was at the university, and you know it was I always loved it. I, I loved everything about the varsity. Yeah, I've got great varsity experiences too. Um, you know, I I worked there a couple of times, like filling in um, when when we were both working at the metro down the street. Um, one time I had to. It was right when they had. Um, got the digital projectors there and it was still this like kind of new weird technology and they were running the uh the oscar shorts program and they were afraid that something was going to go wrong or the, you know it would skip or something like that and so they they paid me to work an eight-hour shift 
in the in the booth where all I had to do was sit there and watch the Oscar shorts over and over and over again, which was both uh, totally awesome because it was like the laziest shift ever, which is built just for me. Um, but also like maddening because, you know, some of those Oscar shorts are, are pretty terrible. Um so there's that. And then, yeah, as a, as a, you know, customer, as a patron, uh, yeah, I saw some great stuff there. I saw, um, Pierre LeFou there. They did, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. I, I saw wonderful things there. I'm trying to think of the last movie I saw at the varsity. It wasn't too long ago. Um, and now it's totally escaping me, which yeah, makes I actually, for bet. Yeah. I actually don't remember the last one I saw there. I was, I was going to look it up when uh when the announcement came but it had been it had been quite a while and and that was part of the problem with the varsity it was it was it was the worst program theater in the chain yeah well af- yeah at, at after a while it became really bad i mean for a while there it it was one of the ones that still did like the adventurous kind of stuff even as the rest of the landmarks or most of the landmarks in seattle were were gravitating more towards these uh uh, you know, mainstream type of things. Uh, well, well was... when I started working there, it was still a, a repertory theater. Like it had, it had three screens and it had like the two upstairs screens, which would play regular landmark stuff. But then it had like the big 350 seat, seat uh, uh, old school style theater that would do actual repertory stuff. Like we, we did Hong Kong double features. We did, you know, uh, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock. We did all kinds of like random stuff. We did a universal horror series. Um, but over, over the time that I was there, uh, all of that just went away. It just became, I don't know if it, it became too cost prohibitive to run repertory or if just landmark would just refuse to, to put out the money to, to, to program it properly, but it just became uh, a dumping ground for the art house movies that Landmark wanted to play, but that they didn't think would draw enough of an audience Well, that's to true. play on a regular theater. That's true. Although, but, but yeah, but within that, you know, some, you know, gems sneak out with that. But you know what? But now that you're bringing it up, it's funny because I remember a couple of times where something a landmark would use, like you said, the varsity as a dumping ground for something. It would be a one week showing. The varsity was always known as the theater where, you know, it play for one week and disappear. Yeah. Um, and it was so funny because whenever they would get a hit, like I remember, what was that? Whenever they would get a hit, they would move it to another theater. Yeah, they, they, it would play like a week at the varsity and and like do really really well, and so they'd hold it over for like another week or two. And as the as the word of mouth, you know, was spreading on this thing, and it was still packing houses. They're like, oh, this is actually a hit. Let's send it to the guild. And it's yep. like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That that did happen. That did happen a lot. But but when I started there, well, like within the first couple of months that I was working there, we, we sold out like a whole weekend's worth of shows of a, a restoration of Knights of Kiberia. Uh, I think we sold out, you know, most of the shows for a week of the restoration of Touch of Evil. Like we, we did really good business. We get, you know, like, you know, crazy stuff on the repertory calendar would, would, would sell out, you know, like midnight shows of, of, uh, of David Lynch movies like Lost Highway or, or, uh. Eraserhead mm-hmm. would just would just pack the theater and and that all just went away. So yeah, yeah, that's very it's sad. It's a bummer. <laughs> I know it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Um, 
Yeah, but there are there are still good theaters in Seattle doing good stuff, and so let's uh, let's focus on those. Yes, we will. And ignore Landmark because <laughs> Landmark has, over the last three four years, uh, made themselves completely irrelevant to the Seattle film scene. Oh, they've just abandoned it completely, yeah. or almost completely, yeah. hanging on by a thread. Well, let's talk about good stuff. Yes, things we like. Uh, on Fandor, uh, they just posted um, the best films of the decade so far, um, which was started by Kevin B. Lee. Um, I think he went on what Twitter and Facebook and and asked people, you know, what's your favorite movies of of you know the last five years, and people chimed in, uh, including yourself, Sean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw your name there in the uh, the credits for that. Uh, your Twitter Twitter handle, as it were, um, and so this is a list that was kind of uh, is compiled by up, uh, about three hundred people. Um, yeah, three hundred three hundred people, not necessarily critics. Just it was open to anyone who who followed him on on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, most of the people who follow him are are critics or or people like me who are not quite critics. Um, so it's you know it's it's people who know a little something about movies who've watched a lot. It's it's an informed voting pool, but yes. a, but a self-selecting one. So it's I think it, I think it's a pretty good mix of of kind of arty picks with more kind of mainstream. Hits. I think it's a pretty good list. Yeah, I think yeah. it's not, yeah it's not bad. Um, do you want to run down maybe the top ten of that, and then you and I can do our top tens. Yeah, the the top ten on the overall list, and and there was no ranking. It's just raw number of votes. Uh, number one is is Tree of Life, and number two is Certified Copy, and those were were pretty clear. Number one, Tree of Life, uh, is number one by twelve votes, and then there's fifteen votes between Certified Copy and the number three. So it's a pretty good consensus, and and yeah. those two were were also on my list. So I'm contributing to that. <laughs> uh, and then the rest of the top 10 were uh, The Master, Margaret, Holy Motors, A Separation, Under the Skin, Inside Lewin Davis, Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives, and Boyhood is number 10th with, with 44 votes. So like less than half of the number of votes that Tree of Life got. So you can kind of see how, you know, the, the top is, is pretty, uh, like the top eight all have between 59 and 103 votes. And then the next, uh, you know, 20 or so are all between like 45 and, and 20 votes. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of splinters off. There. Yeah. There's a pretty clear stratification. Uh, I'm a little surprised to see inside Lewin Davis that high. I am too. I, you know, as we talked about on the show, I was not as high up on that movie as a lot of people. So I still, I, I'd like to revisit it, but I, um, yeah, I, I'm a little surprised to see to see it on there. Yeah, but uh, but that's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to uh, see how that how that does in another five years if right. it's if it's still that high. But but other than that, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, of movies that you're not really surprised to see on a list like that. So what 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 were your what were your top ten? Uh, my top ten, uh, number one, Tree of Life. <laughs> number two, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which uh, incidentally was the last film I saw at the Harvard exit. Uh, that the was Grand Mask. also the last one I saw at the exit. Although I said, I said, I said Midnight, midnight after, after earlier, but I lied. You lied, you're a liar. <laughs> uh, number three is Wong Kar Wai's The uh, Grand Master. 
Number four is The Act of Killing. Uh, number five is Blanca Nieves. Number six, The Master, uh, P.T. Anderson's film. Number seven, The Cabin in the Woods. Number eight, Drug War. Number nine, The Wolf of Wall Street. And number 10, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Hmm. I think those were all receiving votes. I'm trying to look them up as you're, you're typing them. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Good list. <laughs> Good list. Did you say Blanca Nieves? I did. Okay, good, because you put that on like your greatest films of all time list, so it better be one of the best films of the last five years. I, I, I put it on there. I, okay. I really like that movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, my, my Thanks ten... for looking, checking up on me there, Sean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my ten were, and these are not in, in a particular order, um, uh, Oki's movie by Hong Sang-soo, uh, Certified Copy and The Tree of Life, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie, uh, La Ultima Pellicula, which we talked about on the show, uh, Tale of the Princess Kaguya, Johnny Toe's Blind Detective, uh, Hauha from Lissandro Alonso that came out last year and hasn't actually gotten a wide release yet, but it will. And then two uh, that I was the only votes for in the poll, uh, The Midnight After and uh, The Missing Picture, the Rethi Pan documentary about the Khmer Rouge, which is on instant Netflix and you really should watch it. I, you know, I've gotten it from the library twice now, um, but it's come in like at the most inopportune time. Like it came in right around the holidays or something. And, mm. you know, it just sat here and I had to return it because someone else wanted it. Um, so I'm really itching to see it. I, you know, I, I keep bringing it home. Part of the problem is, is that I bring it home and uh, Lindy has zero interest in watching it. And so inevitably when it comes to a movie night between the two of us, uh, she refuses and we end up watching uh, something else instead. So, but I will tell, I will tell her to... that it'll make her cry a lot. Yeah. That's not going to work. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's a, it's a decent list. You know, we, we always, you know, oftentimes we bemoan lists when we see them or whatever, but you know, this is a pretty great list of, of, uh, of films here. And it's a good, a good smattering of stuff, you know? Yeah. And I like that he, you know, listed everything that received a vote and, you right. know, of you get a, a great sense of what the last five years have been like in film because it's like 500 films altogether that got mentioned, uh, which is which is you know kind of neat that of all of these films of of 300 voters, there's only one that you know a third of people agreed were were among the best. Yeah, um, my my one caveat to this is that. Um, I had nothing from 2014, like official 2014 movie on my list um, sure. because I'm such a straggler. So it's, you know, I feel like I undervalued the the most recent year in cinema. Um, and I think my list may look a little different um, come this time next year if I was to, sure you know, recompile it. But, uh, but yeah. yeah. And I also, you know, I, I, I kind of limited it to one per director. So right. I have well, like, like one Johnny Toe on my list, one. One Hong Sang Soo. Those are right. the the big guys. Yeah, and if I was to you know, uh, pick a 2014 movie out of the stuff I've seen so far, it would have been Inherent Vice. But I sided with the master. I didn't want to have you know two PT Andersons on there. So, um, right. yeah. But yeah, good list, people. Way yeah. to go, internet nerds. Uh, <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about Jimmy Stewart now. Speaking uh, of the internet. Speaking of the internet, he invented the internet, mm. uh, from what I gather. Um, you, as we said at the beginning of the show, 
Jimmy Stewart's your favorite actor of all time. I you've been saying that since I've known you. Uh, it's been ten years or so. Um, I don't know that he's. I, I I wouldn't necessarily frame it as favorite actor of all time, at, so much as the best actor of all time. <laughs> I, there, I see the distinction there. I see yeah. the distinction there. Yeah, Polly Shore is your favorite actor. Of sure. All time. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, and and my reasoning for that is is Jimmy Stewart. You know, he's a great actor, but he's in more great movies of more different kinds than any actor that I can think of. I agree completely. I was looking at uh, his filmography as, you know, we were kind of setting up for the show and, you know, I was, we were trying to pick these clips from the the famous movies that he's in or the famous, you know, stuff. And it's just, it's jaw dropping. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. The movies that, that he was a part of, um, you know, he did the four with Hitchcock, um, you know, including Vertigo, which was recently voted, you know, the best movie of all time. Um, and, you know, all those great uh, Anthony Mann Westerns and um, great stuff like um, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and the early stuff we were talking about, the Capra stuff. I mean, it's crazy. The yeah, amount... Plus, you know, like uh, Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, uh, George Cukor's Philadelphia Story. You know, there's, you know, one-off movies like Harvey, okay. uh, the, the Mortal Storm. It's just, it's, there's so many good movies. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a list on, on Letterboxd of, of the 33 Jimmy Stewart movies I've seen. And I have the top 10 are all five-star rated films. And then the next five are four and a half stars <laughs> it's it's just insane and you know westerns screwball comedies melodramas uh the psychological thrillers it's it's just he can do it all and he has you know we 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 talked about in the shop born angel he has this this image this persona the the jimmy stewart all-american guy that that he developed before the war and then he came back from the war and spent 20 years dismantling and subverting in all kinds of, of weird, complex, you know, movies that are centered on his performances. Like something like Vertigo doesn't work without Jimmy Stewart in the lead performance because you need his persona in order for the, you know, to, to undermine. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I know of, of no other star who so actively played around with his studio star image in, in such interesting ways as Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I agree. I, um, it's interesting though with Vertigo, because if I remember correctly, you know, when that movie came out and was a flop, uh, Hitchcock blamed Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> um, which is which is you know a, a ridiculous assertion. You know, well, it, in well, hindsight, it it makes sense if you think of it as as like the audience wouldn't accept the movie because of Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so let's pick our you know while we're doing this, let's pick our uh, essential Jimmy Stewart performance and and i guess i i'm looking at it well i'm it, mine's not even going to be 
the essential Jimmy Stewart performance, but it's going to be actually going off of what you were just saying. Like, um, you know, he, he embodied that persona is so crystallized in everybody's head, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and he reinforced it in each picture and he did things to like change it up. But, but it, you know, is this, is this kind of ideal that, that he created and, and embodied for, you know, four decades of filmmaking or whatever. Um, and my, my choice for essential is actually, it's not even close to my favorite Jimmy Stewart movie. Um, it, it's actually not even my favorite performance necessarily, but I find it really interesting because it's of all the movies that I've seen with him in it, it's kind of the most non Jimmy Stewart, uh, performance or it, it kind of, he's the opposite of his, his, uh, persona in this, um, which I find really interesting. And it does show the range that he has where it, he's not a one note actor. And I'm, and I'm not saying that anybody's saying that, but, um, Anthony Mann's the far country from mm -hmm. 1954, uh, is a very interesting movie because he plays, uh, a very selfish, character who uh doesn't want to get involved in the politics and the life of this small you know um of this town or the people in this community and stuff and he is that the one that's set in alaska yeah yeah that's with walter brennan uh and it's it's so interesting to see jimmy stewart so actively disengaging himself from everything um to the point where he, you know, it comes to a point where he, he has to act, but for so long in the movie, he's, he's, there's this tension with him where he's just trying his damnedest to just not get involved. <laughs> um, and it's great. And it's a, it's a fun movie. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, Walter Brennan is clearly playing Walter Brennan. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the, the two of them together are just, are just wonderful in that movie. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's a minor film. I wouldn't even say it's the best man, uh, Stuart pairing, but I find that, um, his take on that character is very interesting. Yeah. They're, they're also good. And, and, uh, even, even more so than, than the Hitchcock films, it's, it's the Anthony Mann films where you, where you feel like, like Jimmy Stewart is like working out a whole generation's, uh, worth of feelings about World War II through the way that he that he shifts in his his persona because it's like everybody you know everybody was like all american aw shucks you know idealist and then they go to war and and you know see death everywhere and then they come back and they're loners and they're weird and they're kind of psychotic and and that's jimmy stewart's performances in those films mm -hmm. and so yeah i mean he's He's great. <laughs> uh, my, my, my pick is, is, is Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which is, is kind of an obvious choice, but I really, it's really one of my favorite acting performances of all time. And I think it's, it's so iconic that it's underappreciated just how good he is in that movie as the, the, the kind of naive, uh, a Boy Scout leader who goes to the Senate and is confronted with with cynicism of of the way act politics actually works, and be he becomes so distraught and so despairing that he's like near suicide, 
and then you know he you know makes this last ditch effort to to save and basically you know almost dies on the Senate floor and inspires Claude Rains to try to kill himself right outside the hallway. It's an incredibly dark movie. <laughs> but it has it has this image as as kind of Capricorn and I don't I don't see that at all. I, I well, love Mr. With, Smith goes to Washington. Well, that's, you know, I don't, we don't have to get into that discussion, but uh, that whole, I mean, the Capricorn label, I, I understand where it's coming from, but when you actually watch those movies, you know, it's a wonderful life or something. These movies are freaking bleak. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think, I think the label applies more to to some Capra movies than other like you can't take it with you is is one that I don't really like all that much and that was that was the best picture winner of 1938 which also starred uh, starred Jimmy Stewart the same year Shopworn Angel and that's one that I don't really get get into at all or uh, uh, Meet John Doe or the other one uh, what's the other one I don't know it happened one night uh, no the other uh, Mr. Deeds goes to town. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah th- those I think are more are more deserving of that label, and and they're also, you know, ones that for the most part don't star Jimmy Stewart. Like he 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 plays an important part, and you can't take it with you. But he doesn't dominate it the way he does he does Mr. Smith or or um, It's a Wonderful Life, and maybe that's why those movies seem to have greater greater depth to me greater mm-hmm. uh realism i'm i'm not sure well let me ask you this so we 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 set this up by talking about how he's 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 a part of so many iconic uh masterpieces you know through every decade that he was in but uh pick one movie of his that you think maybe is uh not well known that you think people should maybe check out is is that what what would be one that you would steer someone who's only seen the um you know the classics um of Jimmy Stewart what's what's one that you would uh send their way uh probably the mortal storm uh it's not as much of a Jimmy Stewart vehicle as some of the others but it's it's the one among his best films that probably has the lowest profile either, either that or or anatomy of a murder uh which I, I, you know, I feel like that has a higher profile, but maybe it doesn't. I uh, feel like it's talked about. I mean, I think yeah, it's pretty iconic. Yeah, the Anatomy of the Mortar is the courtroom drama uh, from 1959 with uh, with Lee Remick and Ben Gazzara, and uh, uh, Duke Ellington does the score. Uh, it's a really great movie, and The Mortal Storm is a a World War II film made in in 1940 that's very explicitly anti-Nazi, which was even by 1940 was was pretty rare in Hollywood, and it's got uh, Margaret Sullivan, like we said before, and uh, I believe it's her father is a Jewish professor who gets uh, kind of ostracized by by the community and threatened by like Nazi youth led by a very very young Robert Stack. Robert Stack's always a winner. Yeah, um, I would I would suggest people. It's it, once again, it's not on the level of uh, the greats, really, but it's a, it's a fun movie um, and it's late period uh, Jimmy Stewart. Um, but the Rare Breed, which is uh, about it's it's like the Searchers. I haven't uh, seen that one. 
the it Jimmy Stewart is basically John Wayne in the Searchers, but instead of going to save uh, you know, his niece, he's he's hunting for a cow. <laughs> he's going he's going across, you know, vast expanses of America uh, for a cow. <laughs> which is which is pretty awesome. Stewart did another variation on the Searchers with with John Ford called Two Road Together, which he uh, co-stars with Richard Widmark. Uh, that is 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 a brutally you know violent and and very harsh film. It's I, I I like to describe it as the Searchers for people who who think the Searchers is racist because it is it is as as ugly. Uh, a depiction of of the the evils of racism in the white community and their in their treatment with uh, with Native Americans as you are going to find in a Hollywood film, and and Stewart is is terrific in that playing a variation on his Anthony Mann character that might be even more cynical than uh, than any of those. That that's another great one that that not yeah, a lot that's of people one that have I've seen. Been, yeah, that's one I've been meaning to see uh, for a long time, and I, I should really. Uh, check that one out so yeah so that's uh that's part of our discussion jimmy stewart we're gonna uh take a little break and hear a clip from another jimmy stewart movie uh this is uh henry fonda singing uh a song about cheyenne uh from the cheyenne social club See my sister. She's two years younger than me. Up and married to Breedlaw, Sam Breedlaw. Chamber Pot and Pen Drummer used to sell horses till one of them stepped on him. Sam Breedlaw's brother Lucius taught me how to make Indian whiskey. You know how to make Indian whiskey, John? No, Harley. Well, take a barrel of Missouri River water, a couple of gallons of alcohol, and some strychnine to make them crazy, and tobacco to make them sick. Indian wouldn't figure it was whiskey unless it made him sick. Add a few bars of soap to put a head on it. Half a pound of soul red pepper to give it a kick. Put some tumbleweed in, boil it till it turns brown. That's Indian whiskey. Okay, that was a clip from the beginning of the Cheyenne Social Club uh, from 1970, directed by Gene Kelly. Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda are uh, older cowboys who, you know, have been wrangling cattle for you know a long time. It's it's clear, uh, and the movie begins with uh, someone bringing a letter to Jimmy Stewart, uh, and the letter turns out to be from a lawyer who says that Stewart's brother, who uh, was a very different man than Stewart, he was a, a you know hardy living, you know, party kind of guy. Uh, he died and he left 
the deed to this place called the Cheyenne Social Club uh, to his brother. So Stuart and Fonda travel from Texas uh, up to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, and uh, Stuart is expecting, he thinks it's going to be, he's going to take over a saloon and he's always wanted this, had this idea of owning property and stuff. And, uh, lo and behold, he shows up and it turns out, uh, Oh, Cheyenne social club is a den of prostitution. Uh, it's a high class, uh, you know, place. There are six, six women there. Um, and he's very uncomfortable with this. Uh, Henry Fonda, who's his buddy, is is, is kind of rolls with the punches, uh, and but Stewart decides, you know, he he can't accept this. He he you know he wants to be a respectable person, and he decides that he wants to close down the Cheyenne Social Club and and turn it into a boarding house or something more respectable. Um, but as the movie goes on, he realizes how kind of important the the places in the town um, and how much uh, there's a community amongst these women. And, uh, and, and so it goes uh, basically there, there's uh, there's some confrontations in there uh, between him and the women when he decides to shut it down. And he's kind of heartless about just sending them off to, you know, they'll, they'll survive. He assumes doing something else. Um, And there are also conflicts with the town. Um, There's a guy who, uh, feels affronted by the fancy pants bordello and how he was uh, made to feel like an idiot there and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's, it's competently done. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you used a very good word in your letterbox review for it, Sean, you called it amiable, which I think is, is very apt. Um, but I personally don't think it's anything more than that. Um, you know, you, you get Jimmy Stewart, you get Henry Fonda playing off each other, which is a lot of fun. But um, this is this to me, this is uh, much more of a just a, you know, solid entertainment than something like the Shopworn Angel. Um, what did you think about it? Yeah, it's it's nice. This is a nice movie. It's nice to hang out in this movie for an hour or so. It, it, it goes on for longer than that, but it's nice for an hour. Uh, it's pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It's not, it's not, it's not anything. Uh, it's nothing more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Stuart and, and Fonda are so much fun and they have such a great rapport, which you know, for for the two of them, just as as people goes back like forty years, like they they were pals before before either of them had made a movie, like just working on on Broadway, um, and you and you kind of feel that that kind of lifetime of of friendship between the two of them, and so just as a showcase for relaxed acting by veteran movie stars, it's it's really terrific. Uh, there's not much else to it. It's it's so slight, and a lot of it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, just in like the basic plot log- logistics of it, like why would person, why would this person do that thing? Uh, why wouldn't they just say, you know, this very obvious thing that would resolve, you know, whatever plot complication has arrived. Um, but you know that that doesn't really matter so much. I mean, it's just it's just nice. It's a nice movie. 
Yeah, I think my problem with it is um, I, like you said, I, I the the friendship is palpable between Stuart and Fonda, and I think Stuart expressly uh, asked to have you know Henry Fonda as as his uh, partner in crime in this movie, um, and and it and that's great. Unfortunately, once they kind of get to Cheyenne. Um, which is very early on. I mean, you know, they, he gets the letter, they travel together. I love the traveling scene of them, you know, as they go. Yeah. It's like the opening credit sequence, right? Yeah. And they go across vast terrain, you know, in snow and rain and all these things. And the whole time Henry Fonda is just monologuing. He's just this, you know, kind of rambling, old coot or whatever who kind of just tells stories all the time and repeats stories uh, and and Stewart is kind of just suffering through that uh, silently as they go and that's great unfortunately once they get to Cheyenne there's not a lot of interaction between the two of them uh, which is yeah uh, Fonda kind of gets there's not really much for him to do he he's like relegated to the background he, he spends most of his time you know sleeping with the whores with money that he's borrowed from from Stewart which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, but. no, and I actually, I, I actually really like Fonda's performance here. And even though he's not, he doesn't have a lot to do. Um, I love every moment he's in this thing. He's like I said, uh, he's he's amiable. He's kind of just like laid back and and rolling with the punches. You know, he he doesn't see what the big deal is with owning a you know a bordello and. Um, the two of them have a uh, have an argument about about politics, about how Jimmy Stewart's a Republican and Henry Fonda is is a Democrat. <laughs> that is is very meta. It's very meta. But uh, because uh, you know, it doesn't make sense in the politics of the time because right, the Republican exactly. Party hadn't been around for that long, and it was very different then than the one that that Stewart belonged to. Uh, and is it's so alien from the politics of 1970 that it doesn't make sense at all. Like it's, it's really, it's really awkward and incongruous, but it just seems like an in joke between the two of these actors. It totally is. It yeah. absolutely is. Yeah. I was thinking that the very same thing was while it was happening. I was like, Oh, that's kind of funny that the, you know, they're arguing, you know, their own political persuasions on screen. Uh, but then at the same time, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense in the 1860s. No, well, it's 1870 when it gets set up, which, yeah, it, it it doesn't make it. He couldn't have been a lifelong Republican because the Republican Party had only been around for 14 years and he's like 70 years old. But right. yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. It's totally absurd. Um, in the, rounding out the cast, you get uh, <laughs> Shirley Jones, who we all know from the Partridge family. Uh, if you've ever wanted to see her be a prostitute, here you go. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is that the... Um, you know, there are the six women of the household. Are there six or are there five? I think there are six bells. Don't there? Are there six? I thought there were five. I, it doesn't matter. Well, that's the problem. Is yeah. that they're all kind a, of the same? They're all kind of the same. And like this, could, this movie could have been a little more interesting had there been more, you know, distinctive personalities amongst these these women. Um, and I like this idea of this kind of. Um, makeshift family that he kind of gets out of this um in the abstract i like that idea unfortunately these women are all interchangeable and they have no real um personalities whatsoever and you know? they're 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 completely non-realistic like like this this movie is a fantasy but the 
these prostitutes bear no relation to reality. They are so bubbly and so cute, and they just go bouncing around, and they're so happy to be whores, and it's just completely ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, you this came out in 1970, and the next year saw the release of another film with major movie stars about a small town that uh, uh, was very invested in its local bordello. And and that, of course, is, is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And you could not find two movies more polar opposite <laughs> than these two. Like, Cheyenne Social Club is a movie of at least one generation before the Robert Altman film. Mm-hmm. Like they, they feel like they come from two completely different universes. And, you know, I mean, you see the generation gap just in those two movies. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. And no, yeah, no one's going to argue that Cheyenne social club is a, is a uh, work of art, but uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is astounding and heartbreaking. And like you said, it really fleshes out, uh, it's characters, um, you know, Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. Uh, it's just devastating. And uh, it, yeah, it's, it, you're right. I hadn't thought about that, that it's uh, just hot on the heels of this thing. But they, they feel like they are um, decades removed from one another. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. I, I happen to like the films of old people. I like directors who, you know, live a really long time and the films that they make late in their career. I think there's a lot of, of real great stuff in those. And they're usually, and it's usually because they're very relaxed and they're much more, you know, just kind of hanging out films. Every once in a while you get, you get something that's really bitter, like, uh, like John Ford's last film, Seven Women. But m- more often you get along like the lines of like the Howard Hawks variations on, on Rio Bravo or something like Billy Wilder's late films are, you know, they're, they're, they're much slower. They're not as, you know, in a hurry to make a big point about the world. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't think I've seen anything else that Kelly directed other than his like co-directing with Stanley Donnan on, on some of their musicals. Um, I I have a hard time seeing this in the context of of Kelly's career as as an actor. Like does does this feel at all like a Gene Kelly movie to you? Not at all. I mean, it's it's breezy enough if that, you know, counts, uh but no, no, not at all. It really doesn't uh I I you know, if you took his name off of the opening credits, I would never in a million years have guessed this was a Gene Kelly movie. <laughs> That yeah. he had anything to do with it, and like the, the musicals that he that you know he did pay play a large role in in developing and and co directing that you could argue that like he's the auteur of are are distinctive for the the darkness within them for like the the moments where he, where his hero is like really despairing like in something like it's always uh, it's always fair weather or even even Brigadoon uh, is really kind of dark in its portrayal of of modern life and. There's none of that in in this. No, this is a wisp of a, of a movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has moments. You know, I do like. Uh, I actually really did like the scene the uh, where Stewart confronts the 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 guy that beats up um, Shirley Jones. Which, by the way, that comes out of like nowhere. 
Um, yeah. Like, like he comes home one day, uh, and Henry Fonda's like, you know, Jenny's been beat up, and he like runs upstairs, and she's like sitting there with a black eye or whatever, and the room's like torn apart or whatever. And anyway, but uh, I did like that. There was a moment of like you know tension in that scene where he, you know, because clearly. Uh, he, Stewart's an older man and he's going to have this kind of shootout and you know that he's not a fast draw or whatever. Um, and I like how that played out where it paid off with the, um, the cracking of nuts that's happening through by Henry Fonda throughout the movie. I thought that was a nice little, you know, yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice payoff to that, that trope that was, is it a trope? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. the, The thing that's like his trademark for that character that's used as like a punctuation in a lot of scenes. Yeah. Uh, and I like I like the action scene at the end. I thought I thought it was like well mapped out. You know the 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 brothers of the guys that that Stuart kills attack the the bordello, and it, it was it was a nicely staged action sequence. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was. Um, you know what's funny is that <laughs> uh, I got excited with where after that scene. So to to spoil the end of the movie here really quickly. Um, he, you know, they survive, obviously, and he ends up signing the deed over uh, to the prostitutes and, and going back to a life as a, as a you know, cowboy. Um, and it cuts after that kind of abruptly to the two of them, Henry Fonda and, and Jimmy Stewart, in the like the same location that they were in at the beginning of the movie, wearing the exact same clothing with the same length of facial hair that they did <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. And he comes and he gets a letter again which is like the beginning of the movie. And so I thought like the whole movie was like some sort of dream sequence or something, um, which would have been really interesting. I, it wouldn't make any sense, but, um, but then it turns out, no, they were just too lazy to decide to shoot the same, you know, the bookends of the movie on the same day. Uh, see, I was thinking he had like another brother or something and they were going to go off and, and get another whorehouse or something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. You can't escape the whorehouse. Um, yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a fun little movie, um, but it's nothing more than that. I mean, literally nothing more than that. Yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, with that, we're going to take our last little break here, and we're going to hear uh, yet another clip. Which one are we hearing now, Sean? Uh, this, is, this is the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington speech. All right. All right. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. You people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today, full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both know, Mr. Payne. You think I'm late? You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. 
even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. All right, uh, that's our show for this week. Uh, hopefully, uh, you like Jimmy Stewart. Otherwise, <laughs> this was uh, an unbearable hour and a half for you. Uh, next time, we're going to be uh, starting to, to catch up with some of the Oscar movies that hadn't opened in Seattle by the end of the year. So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about Selma, the film about Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights March. And along with that, we're going to talk about Spike Lee's Malcolm X, a movie that I haven't seen in 20 years at least and that you have never seen. Yeah, it's one I've been really I've been wanting to see Malcolm X for like a decade and I just haven't gotten around to it. So I'm glad that we're we're making this happen. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. And uh, if you are in New York you have a chance to see a movie that we talked about a year ago on the show. It is La Ultima Pelicula, my favorite film of 2013. And this counts as a repertory film because it's two years old. <laughs> but because it has not yet played in New York, it'll be eligible for Critics' 2015 Best Of list because it is finally <laughs> getting a week-long run in New York City, which means apparently that it now exists. So go see... Mark Parenson and Raya Martin's film. I wrote about it a couple of times on my website, I think, and we did a whole podcast about it last April when it played in Seattle, which is the awesome thing about this movie, because like in reality, it's a 2013 movie, but if you go by Seattle release dates, it's a 2014 movie, and if you go by New York release dates, it's a 2015 movie. So it's the end of cinema spans three years, at least. Sean's not bitter at all. <laughs> not at all. Uh, <laughs> go go see that movie it's great uh well if you are uh well tying in uh finally uh seattle is going to get its chance uh and and myself included uh to see the new jean-luc godard movie uh goodbye to language which is premiering uh they just added a second show actually but at cinerama um, which is a really awesome venue for them to be playing this 3D Godard movie that's making everybody mad. Um, and that opens here in just a couple days, and I've got my ticket. I'm ready to go. Um, but... yeah, it's, it's playing two nights only, just Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, Monday and Tuesday, one show a night, um, which is uh, ridiculous to me. But anyway, uh, tying in with that yet 2,000 miles away uh, at the uh, Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago. Uh, they're also running that film as well as a, a, a mini Godard retrospective showing a lot of his um, more famous titles from the 60s, uh, including Woman is a Woman um, and Contempt, which uh, is, is and uh, My Life to Live, which is the one I'm actually going to uh, suggest as the rep pick. Uh, it's playing on the 17th there uh which is i think a saturday um and i don't think there are any other showings to that one but uh i saw that one at sif a few years ago and oh i loved it <laughs> so go check it out that's also about a prostitute by the way tying oh, that yeah. in there uh i i have a theory that every french movie is uh has a prostitute in it somewhere hiding in there somewhere yeah well they're usually not hiding 
And even, and even when they're not, there's not like an actual like literal prostitute. There's like a, somebody who can be analogized as a prostitute. Right. Metaphorical prostitute. Exactly. <laughs> the metaphorical whore. That's yeah. my new, that's my new metal band. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's going to be cool. You can find us online, uh, Twitter at Geo Sanders show. Uh, we got the blog spot, the George Sanders show dot blogspot dot com and you can email us at the george sanders show at gmail.com uh one one more jimmy stewart clip and i think this one really ties in well uh it's jimmy stewart telling two idiots uh who could be sean and me uh that they're wrong from the movie rope from alfred hitchcock i don't think we're, i don't think we're anything like these guys no we're really not i know but <laughs> we're two idiots though well uh, one and a half maybe <laughs> thanks for listening and we'll see you next time till this very moment this world and the people in it have always been dark and incomprehensible to me and I've tried to clear my way with logic and superior intellect and you've thrown my own words right back in my face Brandon you were right to, if nothing else, a man should stand by his words. But you've given my words a meaning that I never dreamed of. And you've tried to twist them into a cold, logical excuse for your ugly murder. No, they never were that, Brandon. And you can't make them that. There must have been something deep inside you from the very start that let you do this thing. But there's always been something deep inside me that would never let me do it. And would never let me be a party to it now. What do you mean? I mean that tonight you've made me ashamed of every concept I ever had of superior or inferior beings. And I thank you for that shame. Because now I know that we are each of us a separate human being, Brandon. With the right to live and work and think as individuals but with an obligation to the society we live in. By what right do you dare say that there's a superior few to which you belong? By what right did you dare decide that that boy in there was inferior and therefore could be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? I don't know what you thought or what you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered. You've strangled the life out of a fellow human being who could live and love as you never could and never will again. What are you doing? It's not what I'm going to do, Brandon. It's what society's going to do. I don't know what that'll be, but I can guess and I can help. You're going to die, Brandon, both of you. You're going to die. And Stuart uh, and Fonda are cowboys uh, who have been, you know, wrestling cattle for years. They're they're clearly older men here. And um, wait, they're not they're not wrestling cattle. That's when you steal cows. Oh, is that what it means? Yeah. Okay, I'll start over. Rang- <laughs> wrangling? Can they wrangle? Yeah, they wrangle. Cattle. They wrangle. Okay, they don't okay, wrestle I'll, them. Okay, I'll start over. All right. <laughs> I don't know my time. cattle wrestlers. City, wrangling city boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not from the wilds of Spokane. Yeah, thanks, San Francisco. 